0: Welcome back to The Truth Perspective. It is June 2nd. I'm your host Harrison Cayley. Joining me today is Corey Schenck.
1: Hello everybody.
0: Today our question, God, cosmic criminal or universal king? Mm -hmm. We are going to be talking about theism and kind of some ideas about God because there's an interesting thing happening right now. Um, After 9-11, we saw the rise of these so-called um, new atheists. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, these kinds of guys. And there has been a rise, apparently, in, in past years of the number of Americans in particular, but I'm guessing people worldwide, who are um, self-declared atheists. So they're not just agnostics. They actually, um, you know, they believe in this kind of doctrine uh, spread by um, guys like Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens. But at the same time, in the last, just in the last couple of years, um, we've had uh, Jordan Peterson come on the scene advocating a kind of maybe, maybe not kind of theism where he may not necessarily, or well, he doesn't come out and just say, yes, I believe in God, because he thinks it's a complex question. But we have a lot of people, a lot of uh, young people who are Kind of getting, uh, refinding their religion and like the religion that they grew up with, you know, Christianity, and you know, starting to go to, church, go to church again, even though previously they would have described them as atheists, and even if they still would describe them as atheists. So, I've heard this kind of new semi movement called Christian atheists. So these would be these would be people that don't necessarily believe in the literal doctrine of even the idea of a Christian God, but there's something about it that makes sense to them um, in the kind of archetypal Jordan Peterson sense of you know the story by which you live your life and its its ability to give meaning and thus its practical usefulness so basically the adopting a kind of religious framework as a practical approach to life maybe because it works, but when we look at well um, like i mentioned when whenever Peterson, for example, is questioned about um, the existence of God, it, he basically says, well, that's a hard question to ask because it's just a very complex question, and it depends on what you mean by God, and because there are many hidden assumptions that come along with a question like that. And so, what we're going to try to do today is just look at uh, look at theism in general, like the belief in God. Try to get just a, an introductory idea of why people have believed and do believe in God and are religious in general and then um, try to look at some of the overarching narratives or stories that go along with our kind of Western slash Middle Eastern Judeo-Christian kind of Christian idea and and, and narrative and God and then to kind of see if any of these, well, to see if there might be kind of a middle ground because um, just to get it off, you know, off my chest right at the beginning, I totally disagree with, well, I I very much disagree with the new atheists, even if I don't totally agree with them. I agree with them on many points, but there's something that I think they're lacking. But I also disagree with most of what most religious people say, um, self-declared religious people, um, and especially, like, um, specific Christian dogmas. So, yeah, we'll be looking at that and seeing basically seeing if there's a way of looking at all this and if there's anything kind of salvageable to the idea of there actually being a god. Because if you ask any atheist, like I just listened to an interview with uh, Michael Shermer, and he just cannot believe in a god um, that is like a supernatural being who does whatever, either created the universe or kind of intervenes in certain times in history and in our lives in miraculous ways, or that's just up there watching and... and uh, you know, watching and keeping tabs on us. It's just like a, a no-go area. It's like like Michael Shermer just cannot believe it, no matter what. And so so how can you justify any kind of these religious beliefs? Anyways, short overview of where we're going to be going.
1: Well, I think uh, the, I'd just like to touch on the, the idea of defining uh, what God is. Uh, you know, for ancient philosophers, you know, in Aristotelian logic, uh, the mind works in three uh, three ways predominantly. The first way is that you work with concepts, um, terms, and then in the second way you judge those concepts. So you, you know, you have the concept of a cat and then, you know, in a judgment you say a cat is hairy or a cat is this. And in the third way you you argue and you form premises in order to make an argument. Well, in terms of, you know, the discussion that we're going to be having, you know, you when you start out with uh, the idea of God, God is a concept that has been filled with so many different definitions over the years. Uh, you know, for our Greco-Roman ancestors, the gods were this these fickle, crazy beasts that you know inspired ecstasy and and. Um, and were hope to help uh, an individual to achieve greatness in life, possibly. Um, but you know, then when Paul came around, the central dogma changed radically, and the you know God after Paul and you know after the acceptance of Christianity in ancient Rome, um, or in you know the Rome of you know around the fourth century A.D. the uh, the idea of God was radically changed. God was now this central figure. There was a God, there was uh, Jesus Christ was his son, and there was a definite Semitic uh, element to it, you know, in regards to the traditions of the Jews and uh, the Jewish God and monotheism. But over the years, I mean, when people discuss God, you, you rarely ever get this kind of a, you know, a discernment in terms of what we're actually talking about in terms of what God is um, and, you know, what God it is that we're going to be talking about. So, Harrison, what God are we going to be talking about today?
0: Well, we're going to be talking about two gods. Okay. The cosmic criminal and the cosmic king, as we're we're calling them. But um, before we describe those gods, um, who are very interesting characters, Mm -hmm. I think we should kind of set the ground by trying to figure out just why people have believed in gods. Now because I there's something to the the kind of new atheist arguments like they've got some points right like there's the what do they call it the the something agency hypothesis right where basically we tend to to humans tend to see agency in other humans for instance and to, to share a sense of intentionality like I, I see that you are a being that you know has a um, a, a sense of its own self and its own goals and and does things just like I am, and so we can work together to do things and I, I can I detect an agency in you right that there's a certain there's a thing moving you mm-hmm. um, you 're not just a, an object there's there 's a, a quarry that is there um, you know that and that does stuff on its <laughs> own <laughs> and for example, in Iraq there's no obvious agency, but because we because it's helpful to, to human survival in order to detect agency, especially also like with, with animals and dangerous animals, you need to be able to detect if something can come out of the bushes and, uh, and kill you, right? So you need to be, able, you need to be hyperactive in, in in discerning and looking out for, for agency. And so the idea, that's the idea, right? Is that kind of basically it?
1: Yeah, I think like maybe no. the best way to sum it up is like if you watch a scary movie, at night and then you're going to bed and you're, you know, you're going down the dark hallway and it's late at night and you should already be in bed cause you have to work. But then you're, you're going into your bedroom and then all of a sudden you hear something in the corner and it's dark and you immediately you're thinking like, okay, what is the agency involved in that? That's mm-hmm. your immediate intention is to, find, yeah. what is that? And then you're also, you also want to know the intention of the agency. So there's mm-hmm. like those two extremely important factors involved is the agency and the intention behind the agency. That you you, you, you want to figure it out if it's, you know, what it's going to do to you.
0: Yeah, and you want to err on the side of caution. Yeah. So it would be better to be, you know, semi-certain or to actually be certain in the moment that there is a threat that, um, you know, that can harm your life. And then you take that as real in order to get away mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, not detecting the the agency involved and, um, you, know, you know, being like, oh, well. I can immediately recognize that that's a coil of rope and not a snake, so I'm going to uh, um, not move out of the way, and then it happens to be a snake.
1: Right, but- and the argument isn't the argument that the this is just automatic. It's it's basically uh, the result of our having these psychological modules, as like an evolutionary psychologist might call them, that we have the need to detect agency, and we also have um, this kind of this theory of mind that where we're trying to find the intention of the agency, mm-hmm. but and then religion comes out of that because it just kind of goes haywire. I mean, it's just basically it's so hyperactive, mm-hmm. it's trying to find agency everywhere. So then pretty soon you're like, Oh, the crops are bad, so the gods did it. Mm-hmm. And because I was a bad person, the gods punished me. Yeah, you know, that's yeah, yeah.
0: okay. But the the point being that okay, we've got overac- overactive agency um, detectors and. You know, instantiators like we will we will ascribe agency to more things than may actually have them, and so of course then you see if you look at the history of religion, you've got agency ascribed to everything, including rocks, right? You know, yeah, the spirit of the rock, the spirit of the water, and whatever, and and you know, a near infinite amount of um, gods and and so-called supernatural beings um, to the point where an atheist or a critic of many religions would would say, well, they can't all be true and chances are, you know, not one of them is true, so they're, none of them are true. Uh, you know, th- those are the odds, right? You know, if you've got a thousand religions, the chances of any one of them being true is either going to be one out of a thousand or less if none of them are true. Mm-hmm. So, so what's the point, right? And and why have humans done this? Well, there are arguments for why why they do- they've done it, and it's... it's um, arguably, religions have been adaptive for humanity's survival and uh, social group cohesion. But um, I don't, you know, I want to don't want to get into those areas. I want to kind of look at <clears throat> just take it in a couple different directions. Like um, we read this interesting book, a philosophy book by Robin Collingwood called *Speculum Mentis*, where he gets into um, his thoughts on art, religion, science, history, and philosophy. And the way he describes religion is it's imagination basically let loose to a certain degree, like art. Like art is <clears throat> pure imagination, he calls it, or at least that's the belief of the artist, is that it's pure imagination, that you just, you know, you, you tune into that, imag- that imaginative faculty and create something that is, you know, basically birthed out of that, that, um, that dark, um, you know, womb of imagination and creativity in, in the mind. Of course, that's a somewhat of a of a an error, he calls it, philosophical error, because there is some implicit thought that goes into it. It's not pure imagination. And imagination is always based or rooted in the experience of the artist. So, I mean, just your everyday experience, the objects that we that we encounter, you know, the objects, the colors, the shapes, all of those will influence to some degree, well to a great degree, what the artist ends up creating. And what we end up having is this work of art that um, doesn't have any, any explicit meaning, right? You can't, you can't say about, uh, well, this is what Collingwood argues. You can't argue or you can't say that uh, a piece of art means this. Like this is the meaning of that piece of art because when you say that, well, um, well, first of all, if you just said, if that was the full meaning and the full significance of that piece of art, then you could just say that and you wouldn't need the piece of art. It's like the art is something that's like in and of itself, this artistic creation, it's like a whole world in and of itself. And it's kind of it kind of cheapens it to just say it means this, but at the same time, it's like that we we feel that there's something to art, like there's there's something in it that moves us, and um and it's like we we, well we we feel something like it's significant in some way, like especially for me being a musician, it's when you hear a really great piece of music. Well, what does that piece of music mean, right? Can you put it in words what that means? Oh, like you no, know, you can try, but it's you're just gonna end up sounding like a a cheap you know music critic writing for. Buzzfeed or something, but, um, so we've got that, like, that art as imagination that doesn't have, like, uh, an explicit or even really an implicit meaning. The way Collingwood describes it, it's like you, um, um, it puts you in touch with the secret of the universe. It's like there's this some something mysterious about the universe, and art kind of puts you in touch with that. So you can't explicitly, like, it doesn't provide an answer. Art is, like, is, con- as a, is a constant question, and, it, and the, and Collingwood, said, Collingwood says that, uh, that questioning is the cutting edge of knowledge. It's like because you can never learn something new if you're not constantly seeking for that little bit beyond what you already know. Because if you just have what you, what you already know, um, and you don't question, if you don't try to break that boundary, then you'll just you'll never progress. You'll just stagnate. You'll stay the same forever. But the but by constantly questioning, you're constantly reaching out into the unknown, encountering the unknown to to find something. Potentially new, a new fact or a new idea, and that's the the kind of the function that art plays. It's the art is constantly grasping for the unknown, for reaching out into those like unexplored territories of human thought and and behavior, and finding something and putting it together in a in a in an artistic way, in an aesthetic way, like to to create a, a craft a well crafted story or you know a piece of art that captures something or or. A unified piece of music that again captures something it's 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 impossible to say definitively what it whatever it is in any given instance, but that 's just the nature of art right it's It's kind of mysterious and it 's on this almost like unconscious subconscious level where it operates
1: yeah uh, Collingwood writes uh, that the failure of art is as we have said, not a complete failure, substantial truth is revealed to us we are not cheated of that. But it is revealed only in the equivocal form of beauty, submerged, so to speak, in the flood of aesthetic emotion. It is only because truth is revealed in it that the emotion is aesthetic. But emotional truth, truth in the guise of beauty, is not truth at all in the formal sense. Art asserts nothing, and truth as such is matter of assertion. To be itself, it demands logical form. Art fails us because it does not assert. It is pregnant with a message that it cannot deliver. I think that basically yeah sums it all up right there
0: yeah and that's kind of what he says about art that it's Mm -hmm. that there's there's something like that truth in it but it's an implicit truth and it can't even be it can't even be expressed like in words Mm -hmm. but when we progress to to a religion it's like there's an artistic aesthetic consciousness and there's a religious consciousness and they kind of each have their place in in not only development but kind of being a well rounded human being and the, what happens with religion is is that, whereas in art, each imaginative element is kind of just seen as its own world and as an imaginative, um, like creation. Like you don't you don't go to a movie and then think that all those things are real, or watch a you know watch a, a play or a movie and it's like the artist isn't saying these people are real, and and you don't think it. You, there's a fictional you know you realize it's a fictional creation, right? It's a mm-hmm. lie. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a lie from that that. It speaks a truth that's unutterable. It's an acceptable lie. It's an acceptable lie. But then with religion, it's like the imagination. Um, how does he put it? That's when the objects of the imagination are then given um, like reality. Mm-hmm. So it's like so now it's not just a, a unicorn. It's it's a, a god, like a real god that is that is accepted as a real being, and well, something real. So we we have an explicit. Um, an explicit statement of fact now, it's an assertion about the nature of reality and about the, the way that the, the world is constructed um, and just made, it, the, the way the world is made and the way the world works. So art won't assert that. It just presents its, like, um, its imaginative creation, but then religion, on the other hand, takes an imaginative creation, arguably, and says this is reality. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense to me. It seems like the aesthetic emotion that is involved in art um is also there's also a very intense emotional component to religious experience, especially in like conversion and you know, through rituals and all all of those different religious experiences, um, that there's this emotional, very subjective and like pre verbal, not and not something very that people are entirely conscious of or that they can um that they can consciously understand. And it is an overwhelming experience uh, for a lot of people having some sort of a conversion experience, some sort of a religious experience. And then that uh, that in and of itself is kind of taken to the next level in religion um, when in an actual religious setting. That it's those symbols that are involved um, that produce those emotions are themselves laden with some form of truth. Mm-hmm. There's some, some, some truth behind the symbol that... that is implicit, but still isn't actually, you can't really talk about it, what it is that made you feel this way, but it's this holiness, this holy factor that Mm -hmm. Collingwood said is the important, um, the important, like, kernel of the religious experience, whereas beauty was the the most important kernel of the artistic experience. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, so for Collingwood in religion, the truth is stated in a, the religious truth is stated in a metaphorical form in a symbolic form, and then that symbol is taken as the truth, mm-hmm. right? So there is, it's like the, for religion, there's a hidden meaning, but that hidden meaning is never stated explicitly. And all that, you're, all that you're left with is the symbol, and then that symbol is taken as the literal truth, and then accepted as the literal truth, but, but even then, you can, you can tell that there's something behind it. And he uses the example of, of um, like a child's belief in God, and how parents might even instill this idea of God as the, you know, the big bearded man in the sky, right? And, uh, and they know that that's not a literal depiction, and the kid kind of knows that, well, the kid pictures it, like, pictures it in that way, like Santa Claus. But, um, but the way Collingwood describes it, it's like when you grow up, the, the fictional and then the, the, the kind of meaning behind the metaphor, they both grow in tandem. And they don't contradict each other. It's like you can have both at the same time, and it's it's not uh, you know it doesn't make create mental illness or anything like that. It's it it works, and and he says that's necessary is that religious truths basically need to be told in a metaphorical form in a story form, because they lose they they don't have their their power I guess when they're stated just baldly in some like uh, dry philosophical language. It's like that stops being religion and that starts being philosophy. Um, but for Collingwood, philosophy is the explicit meaning behind the relig- behind the symbols of religion um, but at the same time you can't have one without the other and um, like just a philosophical outlook without the 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 religious imagery that speaks to the heart it's like you I, I guess you could say you, you don't get the benefit of the the religious um, truth without that you know connection to the heart basically which Collingwood calls the religious consciousness and so the the problem you get to with religion is that it it creates this separation between man and God and this kind of focus on the uh, well it focuses on that and kind of in um, kind of solidifies that that transcendence that difference right man and God are essentially different and that's what that's what um impels humans to 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 Urge themselves and will motivate them to be better to basically to be more like God because you're so far away You're so you know disconnected from God that here's how you know that you're, Well, you're so far away that here's what you can do to get a bit closer and it requires that distance But then then Collingwood said it says essentially the solution to the problem of religion is Basically the negation of religion because that you realize that distance is isn't there and that, that's what uh, Paul was all about, um, you know, and the various, very earliest Christianity is to, to break down that barrier between man and God. And, uh, and you see that in the figure of, of Jesus Christ, right? It's the man who is also God and who, um, you know, becomes human to experience the, 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 like the, the utter suffering of the, the human condition and then to be sacrificed and betrayed and die and die the worst death possible, and then to be you know born born to be reborn in a in a higher state and kind of like again a divine state, but even that is stated in a symbolic manner, and it's not necessarily a literal truth. At least you know according to this way that Collingwood has of looking at it, that there's still this metaphorical thing going on. And the thing about religion as religion is that it it takes that that uh, symbol as reality. So it's like the the mother of Jesus Christ was a virgin, you know, Mary was a virgin. And that will be latched onto as a literal truth and a dogma when, as Collingwood puts it, well, the the real question is what does that mean? Right? Uh because it's one thing to just say it and what you know, what value is there in just saying it and believing it if it doesn't mean anything. It's like then then what's the difference between Religious knowledge and just like a, a brute historical fact, right? So you know, on this day back then, this person did something. I say it, I believe it's true, and what? It's like so you know, Mary, Mother of God, was the was a virgin. It's like okay, say it, believe it, but what does it mean? What's the what's the point in even believing in something like that like that? Right? Well. There must be something more to it because there's so much, you know, emotion and, mm-hmm. and significance placed on religious themes and religious symbols. So one thing that I don't think that Collingwood gets into as much as something you mentioned, Corey, about the, the actual religious experience that, that motivates, um, um, a lot of religious belief. Did you have something to say on that or you're going to contradict
1: me? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to completely contradict everything you just said. No, I, uh, uh i know i was i was reading william james varieties of religious experience uh just last week and i was you know i was struck with with the um both how you know excellent of a psychologist he was and also how there was there's so much depth to the religious experience that isn't really um that really isn't touched on in modern day psychology and you know i I think that it fits in with what we 've been discussing on how this how the human society seems to it seems to kind of evolve over time, learning different uh, or just struggling really to come to grips with reality and the um, all of these different forms of religious experience I think kind of attest to that desire. That need, that struggle. There's like a deep struggle involved, but just just the the sheer subjectiveness of all of them lends this just kind of a like almost a. I mean, it's you can see why people would not want to necessarily believe in gods and angels and all this stuff because there's just such an a element of wishful thinking and ecstatic kind of a self abandonment that goes into it. Absurdity. Absurdity. Yeah, I mean that it's um, you. One feels uh quite a quite a lot of pity i think for for people who have you know who've just been completely transformed um you know i mean depending on the effects that it has on their lives but i think that like what we were talking about is this you know this religious experience kind of gives way um or it 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 creates these sort of philosophical, insoluble philosophical problems, like you were talking about, like God separate from existence, Mm -hmm. and then the, you know, just how that kind of, that just you know, that that leads to so many different philosophical problems like the, mm-hmm. you know, like we were discussing the problems of evil, you know, why there is evil in the world, God is separate from existence, all-powerful, omnipotent, and all-good, then why is there evil? And, mm-hmm. you know, theologians and the average everyday person doesn't really care too much about those kinds of philosophical problems, but the more, the intellectual centers in society, they struggle with those problems, and... Um, that in and of itself generates. Um, it's it over time, you know. It generated, or yeah, it generated more of a, a scientific, intellectual attitude um, towards towards the cosmos.
0: I think there are two issues here. Well, at least, but I'll focus on two. One is that when, if we if we think in terms of what Collingwood says about the way that religious beliefs are created, it's basically. Um, human imagination that is then um, made real in a way that art isn't and accepted as real and then passed on through culture. Now what happens with that is that you have a metaphor, you've got a symbol that is then taken as reality and then that literal reality is taken as kind of a philosophical starting point which then leads to a philosophy which guides um, which guides the worldview along with the the religion that doesn't make sense. That is, it it, it doesn't fit together. It's incoherent in some way. It, if if you poke too hard on you know one of those points, it falls apart, and and then so you get this kind of um, insecurity about the the about the metaphors about the symbols because they lead to this this intractable situation, right? Where it's like, okay, here here are my starting points, here are my, my religious symbols, my my religious dogmas. Here's the philosophy they lead to. That philosophy doesn't make sense, so what does that say about my symbols, right? Well, I must be wrong, my religion must be wrong, and no one's going to, well, very few people are going to admit that their religion's wrong, so they'll hang on to it, and they, they'll they kind of ignore the, the hard questions. That's one problem. The other problem is that um, if we look again to the to the forces that shape the development of religions and the experiences that lead to to those imag- those, um, those symbols taken from imagination that are given reality if we look at those basic experiences the, the question that the, the atheists don't consider is that, well I'll say this, the atheists are just as guilty of taking the religious symbols literally as religious people are it's just that religious people Take them literally and say, "Oh, I believe that." And then atheists take them literally and say, "I don't believe that." They're both taking them literally. Neither of them are, are seeking for the the possible truth behind the metaphor, behind the symbol. And so, with take, um, applying that to the to the instance of um, or the phenomena of religious experience, because there are very you know there are numerous kinds of religious experience. The question might be to ask is what is the re- what is the reality behind the religious experience? Is there a reality behind it? Is there a reality that that is maybe more expansive and more um, more complex than the kind of Michael Shermer's and Richard Dawkins'es of the world would have would have us believe like let's re- we should really be getting into that like what is going on with religious experience? like I, I watched this um, this debate. Um, between uh, one of the celebrity atheists, Matt Dillahunty and and Jordan Peterson, um, and they were talking about religious experience. And Peterson brought up um, like the like psilocybin mushrooms. And he was basically talking about the the research that has shown that if if a person takes um, you know a dose of psilocybin mushrooms and has a, a, like a trip, like a, a a religious experience, almost like a psychedelic. Moving experience that that well they'll be eighty percent more likely to have all kinds of you know benefits like they can quit smoking if they want to whereas previously they would have tried and wouldn't be able to do it, it, it basically it's a turning point in their life and and Peterson's basically saying well this is this means something this is evidence of something Dillahunty like eventually concedes the point but he's like well why why can't we just see that as just something happening in your brain and uh, and they kind of they didn't go as far in the conversation as they could have. Because I know Peterson's read um, Rick's is that his name Rick Strassman, the guy that uh, wrote the book on DMT. and the thing that that this guy found was that when you when you basically cr- created these types of psychedelic experiences in the lab, that a lot of these people w- were like seeing aliens, for instance. And he says that's really weird because they were just they were just seeing aliens, and it was as if um and you know every person seeing this reported on this and said it was like a, it felt, well, it was a real experience. Like that's the only way to describe it. When they experienced it, they experienced it as real. And they experienced these alien creatures as alien creatures, as alien beings. It's like, they, they weren't like, oh, you know, I, I I saw this being and it was just a part of my consciousness. And it's like, no, when, when the experience happens, it's as if it's another being. And um, it may not be, but that's what, you know, that's the nature of the experience. And so Dillahunty and Peterson got into this kind of debate over like why why we as- ascribe reality to these supernatural beings, whether they're gods or or um, you know demons or fairies or whatever. but the, the question that, that they never quite got around to and not, neither of them really got into was why is it that when we have a religious exper- a religious experience or why many people who have religious experiences when they encounter, something it is encountered as a being it's like well so you can without getting into the you know overactive agency detection and stuff if you just look at the at the research on religious ex- religious experiences it's very easy to see why people believe in gods and spirits and all these supernatural beings it's because they have ex- encounters with them like experiences of mm-hmm. them now that's again that's not to say that that these are objectively real in every way experiences, but it's clear that they that people do experience what um, what is presented as another being right this this supernatural being so it's really no it doesn't really make much sense to me why why um a lot of atheists um, would be so confused as to why people believe in these things It's like well, because if you look at the religious experience aspect they're there are, it's it's just, that's what happens. Well, they just right? deny
1: that all of that literature exists. You know, they, they I think a lot it. of them, yeah, they don't read it. They don't, they deny that their <laughs> people are having those, ex- well, they deny that it's possible, right? And mm-hmm. so then why even read it? Because it's not possible. Right. If you can't, you know, you can't have an, uh, an experience that, you know, with an alien, because aliens don't exist. And mm-hmm. But then you ask, like what you, you point out, well, people are having these experiences. So what, what how do you, are you do you just leave them to their own devices? You're just mm-hmm. like well no that that can't that can't be, but you know I mean, I think they base their their you know all their credentials their you know their philosophical viewpoint, mm-hmm. their career uh on this because it's profitable to them, obviously, yeah, there's a segment of the population who who likes it, like you said it's growing,
0: yeah, yeah well, it's profitable, and I think that well I don't know, there are so many. So many ways to take that part of the discussion. Like because like a lot of them, like Dillahunty, Hunti, um, are ex um, pastors or you know they were very religious people until you know something happened and they and they basically you know they couldn't go back. And I think that's the case with a lot of well, it is the case with a lot of um, people who um, convert you know out of a mainstream religion into atheism. Is that um, and a, a lot of the times it's a feature of the religion itself, right? Um, like in Christianity, there is a um, a very strong importance placed on truth. Mm-hmm. And so if you're instilled with this idea that truth is important from a young age and then you see something that's in the Bible that's not that doesn't seem truthful, right? It doesn't seem like it makes sense according to you know what you know about what truth is. And so how can you you know so then what's imp- what's more important? you know, believing that little bit of nonsense or untruth or a lie or you know holding truth in high regard as you should and I think a lot of the people that convert out of out of religion do so for um you know for truth because they regard truth highly but then there's they they still kind of get stuck in the details because they're still like I said before they're still taking the the religious symbols um uh, literally and then like um I, I, was, I was happy to see Collingwood say something to this effect in the book because he wrote it, what, like almost probably 100 years ago or something like that, um, uh, maybe a bit less than 100 years ago. And, and this is something that, um, that other people have said recently too. Well, Peterson says it. It's like when you look at what the, what the atheists do is that they're basically, the targets they pick are easy targets. It's like they're, they're shooting fish in a barrel. So they take like the weakest points and the weakest arguments that um, religions and religious people make, and then they're like, "Oh, um, you know, I refuted your argument. Um, I'm smart," but they don't take the best arguments, and they they well because then they wouldn't be able to win the argument, and that seems to be the thing that most like you know celebrity atheists want is that they just want to win the argument, and um, appear as if you know that, you know they want to be the the Julius Caesars of the the academic atheist world that you know never having lost a battle so they um, they will frame the debate in such a way that you know they can't lose because they're only taking on weak targets and that's one of the beefs that Peterson has with them like that they haven't read they haven't read kind of really deep religious thinkers that know a, have a, a, a different outlook they're not just fundamentalists that take things literally um but where I want to go with that is to kind of take a real-world example, um, get a little bit into the the symbol and the symbol in the narrative structure of you know one aspect or or a large aspect of Judeo the Judeo-Christian um, kind of mythos. And if we look at an example, we'll be able to see the simplistic symbol as literal truth way of looking at it, and then we'll see some of the Consequences or implications of of that looking at it like that, and then how that has has affected um, our philosophical notions about reality and God and even our scientific even our, our, our even our ideas of science, and then hopefully um, next week we'll be able to then get into um, a possible third option, right if the literal symbol isn't true. And if the, the rejection of that literal symbol is just uh, shooting fish in a barrel, then what's the other option, right? Is there potentially um, you know a deeper truth to be found behind that metaphor? Um, so, um, I don't, Corey, do you have like a, a description of the the kind of like eschatological belief in early Judeo Christianity?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess when you look at early Christianity, it's just like a minefield. There's still there's just so much that's that's going on. It's it's hard to tell. Um, but recent scholarship, uh, I was going through uh, a lot of that and just looking at Saul and Saint Paul in in his context at the time um, as an apocalyptic uh, Jew and coming from you know numerous apocalyptic Jewish uh, communities that that really basically, um, you know, I mean, they saw the, you know, for them, the end times were, were there, they were near. Um, for Paul, you know, the, the death of Jesus or the death of Christ was, um, had initiated this, this, uh, this basic huge, uh, you know, domino effect that was going to culminate in the rising of Christ. And for Paul, uh, um, you know, the resurrection was the was the first part. The second part was the return, which would lead to the resurrection, and then basically the overthrow of all the worldly powers, and then the final stage of the of the plan, which was God's plan, um, was the return of the divine rule of Christ to you know, and the full dominion of God's sovereignty over all of the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, after you know the you know, years of. Um, uh, you know suffering, but for Paul, he was he was he was opening it up for to Jews and Gentiles at the time. It wasn't just it wasn't just Jewish, but it was extremely. I mean, that was the, where he was coming from. And then the, it sounds like at the time his philosophy, that religious outlook, was gaining uh, a good amount of converts, and so he. At that time, he basically, the early Christians, a lot of them, you know, the names that they had for themselves was like the Way, the Nazarenes, you know, it was, they weren't, you know, they didn't really necessarily always call themselves Christians, but it was the Way that they were following. They had a plan that basically would, you know, there was the plan of action of how to act, how to behave, how to purify yourself, what purity meant, you know, there was, you know, in terms of not just, you know, Jewish, you know, you can't eat. Uh, pork, or you can't eat this or that. It was very intricate. For For Paul, the, you know, the strong believers were those who who understood that only, um, that what you, if you thought something, it, it was very, I'm not even going to try to go into the, the details of what, of uh, the early Jewish uh, thinking on, um, on impurity, impurity for Gentiles. But basically, yeah, they had this plan um, in order to, did they Re-establish. The, did they have the plan
0: or was it god's plan or was it both
1: it was given to them through it was revelation mm-hmm. right okay. um and there was a apoc- uh, apocalyptic literature in like the books of enoch and uh mm-hmm. that basically told you know foretold that the messiah would come and then that then this plan would play out and you know so get ready now you have to live now everybody has to live a moral life mm-hmm. you know this is what 40 years or so after the death of caesar and all of that uh you know and i mean you just imagine what kind of moral impact that had on all those communities mm-hmm. and the and then you know with the jewish war the apocalyptic thinking was it seemed like it was really catching on over the mm-hmm. course of the next couple centuries you know they were discussing whether or not to include the revelation in the canon and I read one author, I can't remember his name at the time, but he said that Revelation was really catching on for people, <laughs> that people, you know, the apocalyptic view was really catching on to people. So that's kind of the context um, of that early Christian belief. And then obviously, you know, there's the elements of sin, um, especially in terms of, uh, you know, missing the mark. You know, man is man can't choose his own fate, basically, mm-hmm. it's the idea of sin that, Nothing, everything you do is going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Now, you are completely enslaved to sin, which is, you know, I mean, looking at it now, we could look at it in terms of lower nature, or, you know, just, you know, but it was, there was a moral, there's a very moral element. Mm-hmm. But then out of that sin, that's how, what God, that's how God worked his plan, was that you were basically unconscious of everything that you did, that there's nothing that you could do about it. You are going to sin forever. But Jesus' death made it so that you could be forgiven for that sin and now you could take part of the you know the benevolent part of God's plan whereas everyone before you know
0: okay so there's a few elements if kind of try to break that story down and just state it very simply it's like there's something wrong in the world and something will happen to make things right again um in the world and this will God will do this basically God will intervene in the world to set it right and there there is a social aspect to this and an individual aspect um, the social aspect being re resetting the social order right and this would be the kingdom of God Institute reinstituting God's rule on the planet and or in the just in the the known world you know the known region of uh, of in terms of which these people thought and on the individual level we have s- sin and the so there's a, a state of disconnection you know we talked about earlier um, a separation between man and God and um, and that wrong or that you know that thing that's disordered and that's there's something wrong with that will be righted as well and you will then be put in um, into right alignment with God um, a couple thoughts on on both of those things one about apocalypticism in general is that the apocalyptic framework was actually a you know, it wasn't a specifically Jewish or Christian thing. Um, it was in all the like Middle Eastern and Near Eastern cultures at the time. You could you could find it in in Greece, North Africa, um, Persia, the, and the 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 basic apocalyptic idea went something like this: is that <clears throat> the the social order is um, is the, well, there's something wrong with the way the world is right now, and it was usually because of foreign occupation. So like uh, a different Nation or um, you know ethnos would come in, take over and occupy the the peoples the, the well the people in their land, and then the like the priests or the the scribes in that in that in their religion the the conquered people, the occupied people would then write these apocalypses they were called, and in these books, it was like okay well we 're currently occupied. this is a state of cosmic chaos, and what will happen is that things will, will break apart even further, there will be cosmic calamities, there will be, you know, comets from the skies and earthquakes and wars and death, and And things will break down even further and they'll break down so much that, uh, and that will be the point when, when God intervenes and re God's rightful rule. So basically we'll get control of our land and our government again. And um and that was usually accompanied by like a messiah type figure so um, God's agent in the world so things were bad because we were we're basically an occupied people what's gonna happen is God is gonna send his his warrior to us to set us free from um, from our captivity and just in a you know very broadly and even using some kind of metaphoric language because it's not necessarily a captive and a captive people right so like so the reason this applied in, say the first century was the the Roman occupation of Judea um, you know where Paul and and the the figure of Jesus were allegedly from in this region um, the Romans basically ruled and the, the Jews at the time didn't have full self-rule basically so it's understandable that using these themes of the time that 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 was seen as a, a bad state of affairs and then God would intervene to set things right now what Paul, Paul came in and kind of, like, changed the game a little bit. He added, like, he, he still had that framework, but he kind of changed the terms of, of what was going on. Because for a lot of these apocalyptics, um, it was very, like, um, well, it was very literal. So God was going to come, and, and he was going to fight for us in our war, and we were going to, we're going to beat the bad guys, and, and then things are going to be the way they were again. They're gonna come back to this cosmic state of order. And, but, you know, Paul didn't seem to be really in, you know, into that kind of thing. The, you know, Jesus Christ for him wasn't this, this warlord that would, was was coming to fight a war for Judea against the the Romans. You know, Paul famously said, um, in, you know, in his letter, give to Caesar what is Caesar and, God's to, and to God what is God's, or worse to that effect. Um, So, Paul was in a sense like apolitical, of course there's always a political aspect to to what's going on, but, like Collingwood um, argues, is that um, Christianity, and um, Collingwood doesn't say this, but really what that means is Paul, because most everything that we think of as modern, as well as Christianity, uh, comes from Paul, and from um, Paul's own experience and the thought that he developed based on his experiences and paul kind of he he closed the gap between between God and man, and again, that is like a symbolic thing we got to have we have to ask what that means. what does that actually mean when we have this this story of God intervening in the world to set things right that is that can have a very literal depiction and literal meaning, like you know you can have a painting of God coming you know coming through the sky appearing and you know maybe some thunderbolts and lightning and you've got his little avatar messiah figure fighting the holy war and regaining the you know control of the land and then you've got god's kingdom and it's all very nice and, and literal except we've got this god coming through you know this this old, this old bearded guy in the sky right which doesn't quite mesh with our experience so that's a problem, right? Is that a problem that that's that we can't we can't see a bearded guy in the sky? <laughs>
1: Is that? I don't know. I mean, I think when I look at what Paul did uh, at that time, uh, reading about all the crazy mystery rites, um, initiations, uh, the you know just the widespread need for ritual in uh, in ancient Rome and you know thousands of years of crazy of just, you know, bizarre processions and you know self-flagellation and you know the j- sacrifice of animals um, and what Paul what he implemented was this basically I, I I feel like deep down it was basically a religion of truth even if it wasn't always that but what mm-hmm. Paul that's kind of the the value system that it brought to bear was was okay. No more messing around. Let's get serious about our religion. And this mm-hmm. the religion. We uh, the highest aim is truth. You know, Christ. You know, truth. God incarnate. Christ died for your sins. Christ. It seems is you know he in in the New Testament refers to himself. I think as as the truth as the way. Um, and at that point, it seems like the idea of religion became. Um, you know, through this through this dogma, it became that much more serious and less, um, less just chaotic and frenzied, and you know, and it and I, it seems like it really provided that kind of fertile ground for intellectual and for the intellect of Western society to develop that would then turn around and devour its own creator, mm-hmm. you know, devour the the Christian mythos and logos that gave birth to it. Um, but maybe that's skipping a few steps.
0: What Paul also did was he made it very practical, mm-hmm. and um, like in, in a in a way that Jordan Peterson does for a lot of people today, is that it was here is how to sort your life out. Here are some very basic, simple things for you to do in your interactions with people around you, and basically he he brought he brought religion and you know philosophy out of the. The, the sky like um, it wasn 't just some mental exercise that you engaged in you know lounging on uh, on the weekend in your cigar um, lounge. <laughs> um, not that they had those back then or there, but it was something very practical that you engaged in every day in all your interactions with other people basically like religion was how you lived your life, and that was what Paul was constantly haranguing his people for. Is okay. Put this in practice. What are you doing? You say you believe in these things. Well, actually, actually, prove it by, by your actions. You know, be a decent person, basically. And really, when you read Paul's letters, it's like it's it seems like very simple stuff. But it's the simple stuff that is so difficult to, to actually put into practice. When well, it should be easy, but it, you know, it doesn't.
1: We're talking about the the elements of. This of this religious thought and kind of you know just the practical aspects of it, um, Collingwood writes in the idea of history about how Christianity revolutionized the study of history for Western society. Whereas before Christianity, uh, historians were. Subject to a number of different errors in the way that they perceived history, whether it was you know the history of Rome as if Rome always existed and would never change and would exist into the you know the far future or um, or or just particular histories histories of certain cities, whereas when Christianity came around, the idea of sin uh, and the fact that man was enslaved to uh, to sin and that god 's purpose was throughout all of the world made made it possible for Christian thinkers and historians during those times to to uh, to look at every people and look at the world to, as itself as a a universal history as it, it all had a, a purpose all had relevance for the study of history and and that all came about because of you know the concepts that were developed by paul that were implemented in society in christian society and that continued to uh have their influence all the way up you know to the 18th century when history really you know uh had like another radical leap in thought but you know at that time they of course there were many you know there's a lot of problems with with uh you know seeing god you know because they they believe they could see the future. Essentially, that was a problem. You could you know what it's going to happen. God's going to come down and change everything and put you know everything back into its right place. So as soon as you know somebody knows what the the future is, then they're not really doing history anymore. They're they're kind of they're writing you know fan fiction or whatever. But um, <laughs> but you know just as a, a practical effect, you know as in the corner the evolution of the Western mind, thanks to you know theism. That it was. Uh, that was one of the practical effects.
0: Oh, just a note for our listeners: we're going to keep this week's show pretty short, and then uh, continue our discussion next week. Um, so, maybe one last kind of theme f- of, for discussion before we end this week's show, um, and that is to look at this idea of of God and the the kind of some of the literal ideas that have been. Um, that people have had about God, especially in the monotheistic religions, <clears throat> and then um, just how that how that has played out, and kind of maybe some of the implications that it ha- it's had for you know us today. And it's got its roots basically in that story of um, there being something wrong in the world, and then God intervening to set it out to to set it straight. And I think that a lot of the problems that have that we've had over the last couple hundred years of the the clash between science and religion has actually been caused by um, um, some of these symbolic ideas that were taken literally and it's had negative effects on you know religion today as well as science and a lot of that can actually be traced back to this idea that was ascribed to to god early on and that is like creation out of nothing you know in latin it's called creatio ex nihilo this is the idea that that God was this all-powerful supernatural being that out of nothing created the universe. So there was nothing, there was only God, and then God created this universe. Um, And the, the logical implication of this is that God is omnipotent, God has all the power, and so therefore God has complete and total control over that universe. So God can intervene in any way. Basically, there are no unbreakable cosmic laws like so if God wants to to break the law of gravity gravity for for an instant you know to to float maybe to float Jesus across the uh, across the water then he can do that or but basically God can do anything anything that's imaginable you know God can do because God is all-powerful so God can control people's minds control their actions God can um, you know, destroy the entire universe in an instant, or bring it back in an, uh, in in an instant. Well, bas- but basically, God can intervene in any way at any time, and those are called miracles. And so, when God intervenes through His Son Jesus Christ, that is a miracle. Um, that is God intervening in the the way the world has naturally been playing itself out, and um, and kind of hitting the reset button a little bit? Well, at certain times, right? So God intervenes in the creation that he created out of nothing and is all-powerful over that creation. And there's a lot of implications for that idea. But that's why at the beginning of the show I asked if God was the the cosmic king or the cosmic criminal because, well, atheists would argue either that God is a cosmic criminal or doesn't exist, um, but also implicitly the religious um, religious thinkers and believers in an omnipotent God view God as a cosmic criminal. Just they they both do it in a different way. Like for the people that believe in miracles, God is a cosmic criminal because he is he is capable and does on occasion break the laws of the universe, the physical laws of the universe, um, through what have been what have traditionally been called miracles. And the thing about the the way the idea of miracle developed. Um, in the Christian tradition is that basically anything kind of supernatural that was in Christian history or believed to have been in Christian history was considered a miracle. Um, That was, you know, God's unique intervention in the affairs of the of the cosmos. But no other experience like from a similar experience from another religion would be classified as a miracle. Uh, Those things either just didn't happen or maybe they were the devil kind of um, impersonating or fooling people into believing this was a, a an actual miracle from God. So in this, we have this tradition of seeing God as um, as the creator of miracles, as well as the agent behind the miracle, and the miracle as being this, this unnatural, super supernatural event that only occurs because of the intervention of this transcendent supernatural being with all power. And like I said, there are several bad implications of this, um, which we won't get into a lot of, but one of which is, if God is all is all powerful, then essentially that means that that um, he, that no part of the of creation can have any agency, because agency is is power, the the power to to self determine your own life to some degree, and if God has all power, then by extension all agents, all people we think of as agents ourselves, everything is in some sense controlled by God, <clears throat> and the the implication of that is that God is evil because God must be therefore directly responsible for any evil in the universe and there are all kinds of ways to try to wiggle out of that one but it seems to to have been um, an insoluble problem at least in um, theology and in the you know, in philosophy of religion <clears throat> because um, all of the, well it's the argument that all of the um, atheists make, well one of the arguments that all the atheists make and it's also an, a problem that most religious uh, scholars and theologians have trouble with. They basically have to come to the conclusion either that, that it's not really evil, like the things we see around us aren't really evil. Um, we just may think they're evil, but they, they may actually be good in a larger context. So they may they argue, argue this point, but they, explicit, they don't explicitly say, um, oh, you know, raping and torturing little kids is actually probably, or it must be a good thing in some way um, for for us and for God and for that little kid because we can't explain how God would let that happen. But it it's really just comes down to this simplistic and wrong idea of God. Because I mentioned this idea of the creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Well, that idea kind of came out of nowhere. It was a creation out of nothing because um, traditionally, like in the Hebrew scriptures and even in... Early Christian, early Christian thinkers, like for the first 100, 200 years, the, that idea didn't exist. Um, what what you had was a creation out of chaos, not a creation out of nothing. So there was something pre-existent that God then shaped into a habitable order. Um, God didn't create it out of nothing. And the the implication of this is that there are certain things that God can't do. Because there was a chaos, there was a world, there was a, a raw material, basically out of which the universe was formed, and god didn 't create that, it was already there, it has its own power, and that is um, arguably the, the starting point for for how free will can exist, you know to tie back to our, our last show is that there is at the very beginning of creation, however you know we measure beginning um, at the most primordial level, there is um, there is a some there are some things in this chaos that have their own power, and that power arguably is then expressed in higher beings as free will. It's that that ability to do something, and that actually can account for evil. Well, do you have anything to say on that, Corey?
1: Well, I just well when you're, you're discussing the that conception of God as creating uh, all everything out of nothing, and it it makes. Me think about this this need that these atheists these mechanistic people uh this relationship between the the you know these people who believe in some you know super big white white bearded daddy in the sky who, you know, far, uh, far away, the people who have that conception of God as the top of the pyramid, the big bad guy who's going to beat everybody up, do it, you know, take names at the end of time. And the atheists, they have this symbiotic relationship because, you know, in the 17th century that was uh, – you know that as the you know people's intellects were you know they were curious about all different sorts of things about psychology and about miracles and and people were naturally starting to think well you know if if miracles uh, occurred in the past you know maybe a miracles can happen maybe you know like we we're talking about the religious experiences that people mm-hmm. have these crazy religious experiences with, you know it could be fairies it could be all this but you know people it's it's it would be natural for people to start to think well maybe that's just the natural part of reality that yeah. sometimes just crazy crazy things pop in and do horrible things or you know there's um, but you know the church at the time or you know these these authoritarian followers of the church um, they they had to squash that uh, they had to squash the idea that any other kind of miracle or any kind of breaking of the laws would be possible because that's only reserved for their tradition, and so then they turn to the mechanistic philosophy to in order you know to basically say no, it's God created everything, He put everything into place. All everything follows its you know these laws, um, and that became you know these abstract laws became the foundation of the scientific uh, worldview. And then you know the we still get to keep our God. He's still out there. You know he just kind of intervened in a little in some of the things that we don't quite understand. Mm-hmm. But as time has gone on, you know, like you discussed before, the God and the gaps has continued to disappear. There as there become fewer and fewer gaps in terms of this weird cause and effect uh, worldview, which which for some reason you know we still discuss discuss it as if we have any idea what it really is you know i mean a cause and effect everything has a cause and effect like a chain of cause and effect from the beginning to the end as if there aren't a billion you know different you know things impinging on that so much um chaos and order and you know so many things impacting the universe at any different time but um you know, I I just I think that that just going back to what I was saying about the, the you know the religious the experiences that people have, um, the atheists and those die-hard theists have just you know in the have basically done a a, a huge number <laughs> gaslighting mm-hmm. gaslighting a large part of the uh, population. Yeah.
0: Well, we're going to wrap up maybe just to sum up some of the ideas that we'll continue um, to develop next week. To bring back Collingwood's idea about religion and art, the well, the religious symbol of you know God the Father as this all-powerful being that has been taken literally for eighteen hundred years at least, and one of the results of that was that we cr- humans, you know, we created a scientific worldview. Well, what became a scientific worldview out of those assumptions? So out of that. Um, that literal view of of God as the omnipotent supernatural being um, that exists outside of creation and sticks his hand in like a Monty Python God every once in a while just to to set things the way he wants them to be, and one of the, so the way some of the ways in which that has happened has been. Well, I think, like you were saying, Corey, because miracles are strictly, or were strictly, a Christian thing, proving the truth only of Christianity, that blocked off any um, any scientific study of religious experience or what we would call parapsychology from from very early on, because, well, it was just you don't go there, because it was it was. Inconvenient evidence, because if it were if if it were to be shown that a lot of the things described in, for example, the New Testament, like um, like an apparition, like the the apparition of Jesus um, in his in his resurrected body, um, of, you know, not necessarily as flesh and blood, but there's something kind of spiritual about it. If that were to be shown to be a um, a kind of common experience. Or just any kind of, of these weird stories, if some of those were to be found uh, to be more common than people would otherwise believe, that would take away the exclusive truth of Christianity. And so this actually led to what what we have now as our scientific worldview, which is um, it's based on... Only on your senses, so you perceive reality only through your senses. It's atheistic, so there's no there's no God, and it's materialistic. What basically happened is that we had this this uh, materialistic framework to to the way the world works, and the only reason that materialistic framework was created to begin with was to preserve the supernatural, omnipotent nature of God. Um, now, now, there's um, for anyone that's interested in. in Reading kind of the arguments and how this all, how that all happened and how it works, um, there's a book um, called I believe it's called God Exists but God Does Not by David Ray Griffin. Um, that's the the first well it's God exists but God G A W D does not. So the first God G O D and the second God G A W D. Um, and arguably the God that we've been talking about for this show is is G A W D. It's this um, omnipotent God that. Um, it has all the power, and it intervenes in creation and in the causal the causal nexus of what happens in creation. And God is the reality behind the symbol, basically, like Collingwood would say, an absolute being or supreme being, absolute ultimate, the you know the the very simus of um, of creation. And so, but I think we'll wait until next week to get into a little bit of that that sound good Corey.
1: that sounds great (laughs) all right well uh
0: for now thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll be back next week make sure to tune in tomorrow for behind the headlines and we'll see you then everyone take care
1: have a good week everybody